Thanks for tuning in to the Weaver On-Chain podcast series, where we dive into various topics in the digital asset industry, guest speakers who are deeply involved in the space. I'm your host, Tim Savage, tax partner with Weaver, and I lead Weaver's blockchain and digital assets practice. And today I'm so excited to feature today's guest, Gavin Fury. Gavin has practiced law for 23 years and is part of Winstead's investment management and private funds group. And over the past six years, he's been dedicated to projects involving Bitcoin and other digital assets and has counseled investment managers, public companies, digital asset platforms, and other businesses who are active in this space. He is a frequent speaker on the U.S. regulatory considerations for digital assets, and he has a deep understanding of the securities and commodities law issues surrounding commodity pool, commodity pool operators, trading advisors, and regulated investment off advisors. He is very familiar with this industry and uh, as well as uh, the various regulatory oversight that um, that the industry is seen through. So Gavin, good to have you on the show today. Tim, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, for those of you who are watching this and also participated in our State of the Industry webinar a couple of weeks ago, you will recognize Gavin's face. Um, he was one of our featured panelists and just has a wealth of knowledge of uh, the, the legal and, and just really the overall uh, trends and, and updates in the industry. Could you give us a, a little bit more background on how you got into digital assets uh, professionally and, and what you're doing today? For sure. I was uh, in-house for a long time for a commodities trading advisor. And before that, I worked in Chicago for a big law firm that worked with hedge fund managers and, and commodity trading advisors, commodity pool operators. So invested in um, all sorts of alternative assets. And so right from the start, I've had a sort of regulatory focus on, on what's the difference between a commodity and a security. And that's sort of been throughout my practice. So in 2017, I I started at Winstead and one of my first uh, assignments to, was to work with an SEC registered investment advisor that was trying to figure out custody um, and who would be a qualified custodian if they wanted their their hedge fund to get direct exposure. And back then in 2017, it was sort of actual conversations with with Wences Cesares of, uh, of Zappo and, and, and sort of rolling up our sleeves and, and getting on calls to understand which subsidiary and, and, and how, um, how their procedures work, that sort of thing. So it was uh, an exciting time to get involved. Yeah, well, um, you're obviously well experienced in the space. Um, maybe starting with some of these recent updates just with the market players in the industry. Um, you know, it's it, we've seen a lot of movement both in in terms of um, price action, but also just news that might be correlated with that. Um, specifically around uh, things like the BlackRock spot ETFs, which uh, I, I think the community is very excited to see. Um, but then also some other factors that are um, more more challenging to kind of understand. Things like the SEC lawsuits with Coinbase and Binance and a, a number of other exchanges. Um, and, and of course, the wrap up of, of FTX. So 
you know, let's start with this first one, uh, the BlackRock spot ETFs. Uh, what is going on there and what do you think is going to happen as far as approvals and how that will affect the overall industry? So the there have been um, applications for spot ETFs for many, many years. It could go back to 2014 or, or around about then and the, the Winkle uh, Voss Brothers um, application. So there have been applications for a, a long time. Uh, what's new about uh, and the uh, there has been a, a sort of big ability to delay on um, approvals because the the whole process is a sort of a amendment or an implementation of the 1940 Act or the 1933 Act with an exchange listing and and both of those processes rely on special relief um, in many cases obtained by the exchange itself. And and so there can be long delays <laughs> in approval. Up to now, it was mostly because um, there have been futures ETFs, but not spot ETFs. And the given reason was that there were insufficient surveillance agreements between um, or or markets that were sufficiently com made the SEC comfortable at the spot level versus a futures market because there's a Bitcoin futures. Uh, and so th th obviously it doesn't take too, it's not too difficult to see through that because the, um, while the, the markets would be rigorous at a futures level and, and well uh, regulated, uh, they depend on the spot prices. So I think we've, we've probably seen um, a reticence to let institutional money drive up the price of Bitcoin and, uh, and and some thought that that investors would be protected by by not having access through a securities wrapper um, at the retail level. Uh, yeah, so I could tell. Would it be helpful just to talk about what's changed now? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, when comparing the the current ETF application versus the ones who have been rejected or are pending yeah. with an expectation of not being approved. Yeah, I think definitely. Yeah. So, so we've had a uh, new spot um, ETF um, applications in from uh, BlackRock and Fidelity and Valkyrie uh, wisdom tree. Uh, I think Invesco. So some very, very big players in the ETF markets and, and indeed, financial uh, financial markets overall. Uh, and so I think what's what's different about these is is that BlackRock has a pretty a pretty amazing uh, record of not submitting applications uh, unless they have some some thought that they're going to be approved. Um, I, I don't think we can predict how quickly that approval will or won't take if it's based on prior performance, it could be never or a long time. However, the the sort of the elbow of the, the, the traditional financial markets that is now sort of leaning more heavily on, on the regulator. And uh, also BlackRock spot ETF, for instance, depends on Coinbase uh, if for custody and, and a couple of other roles and, and market surveillance as well. And so that is not bad timing in terms of a big traditional manager uh, sort of in a way, undermining the, the SEC's uh, um, sort of 
painting of, of Coinbase in its lawsuit as a bad actor. Um, and so it, it sort of, it's a bit of a reset on that. Um, and uh, BlackRock CTF is kind of interesting. It holds spot and it's a grantor trust, uh, which means that it's actually um, for tax purposes, it's like you're holding the asset. Uh, and it's not a traditional, it's not an investment company, it's not a 40 act, it's more like um, the largest gold ETFs. And there's an in-kind redemption feature, albeit through a broker, but where you in theory should be able to receive at some future date your your Bitcoin, which is um, which is pretty, pretty cool, albeit through these, these authorized participants that are basically brokers, dealers that help you um, kind of get in and out in these big baskets uh, of shares uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, I think particularly with this spot ETF uh, on the BlackRock side, what's interesting to me is that it does call for daily settlement on chain of Bitcoin. Um, and, and I think, you know, previous issues with these spot ETFs have been a valuation mechanism or a kind of settlement mechanism of how do you get this value of the ETF to align with the underlying asset. And it, it seems, you know, the partnership between Coinbase and, uh, you know, the largest financial institution in the world, um, you know, to be able to settle that on a daily basis is a really uh it's a big feature of this particular application. Um, and, and I think it does, you know, if it, if it's implemented correctly, uh, it does open the door to other institutions and, and major investors who don't necessarily want to deal with custody issues or, you know, having to navigate on chain or, or exchange uh, prices. They can just simply trade the, the spot ETF and it opens the door for a lot of capital to be uh, invested into this market. One of the questions I have about it, Tim, uh, who are these authorized participants, these broker dealers that are actually going to be uh, bringing baskets of Bitcoin to get turned into units and, and vice versa? Uh, because um, the actual involvement has been quite limited uh, by by the SEC's uh, and FINRA's um, uh, mandate to actually perform those obligations. So I'm sure there are people waiting in the wings for this filing to have been made, but it does put them in a very powerful position, these authorized participants, whether or not they do redeem, etc. And if there might be reasons they didn't. And uh, I don't also don't think we know what is going to happen on a hard fork, you know, you're sort of handing over the, the determination of what happens to to BlackRock. Yeah, that's a theoretical that uh, I, I think a lot of pro Bitcoiners don't really want to be thinking about right now. They're just kind of excited <laughs> with the news right and, you know, as it stands. But those are real issues that you've got to think about. You know, what a future hard fork, which asset are they going to be choosing? Which one becomes more widely adopted? Uh, what if you choose the wrong one? How do you, uh, you know, revalue the underlying? So, yeah, lots of questions. Um, what about, you know, what are your thoughts on the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, coming out and, and saying, which is in contrast to, you know, some statements he's made years before of, um, quote unquote, Bitcoin is an, an institute, uh, sorry, an international a asset. 
I mean, I, I, I think, I, I don't know what the genesis of, of Larry Fink's journey from a uh, great doubter to proponent uh, has been. I imagine that, that there has just been a groundswell of support uh, and demand in, from clients uh, for many years. Uh, and clients of some size, uh, pension plans, et cetera, and others that um, insurance companies, all sorts that that for one reason or another, either can't or uh, hold their own uh, Bitcoin or don't feel comfortable um, holding it through the custodial solutions currently where the keys are held by the custodian. So uh, I imagine his, his mind has been opened over time. Um, by sheer virtue of client demand, but who knows? Yeah, well, and it seems to um, be a noticeable change in the position of the asset or, or how the pers his perspective of the asset um, ha has changed over the, over time. I mean, you see it in 2017, BlackRock is pretty openly saying, no, this is not something that we're interested in and it's completely a 180 today. So it does seem that you know this differentiating factor of Bitcoin as an asset class, which is different than other crypto assets, um, you know they are taking that seriously now. Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm sure there's a there's a bit that you know there's just a practical reality. There's a big pent up demand for an asset, and if BlackRock can provide that vehicle, that that's probably a, a smart business decision. Yeah. Last question on this ETF thing. Um, would this allow your regular everyday uh, employee or worker um, who has a retirement account, let's say a 401k, does this allow them to access this type of asset in their retirement plan? Uh, so currently, the the sort of in the scope of things, uh, ERISA um, plans, etc., are sort of behind and more cautious uh, than uh, as well as um, benefit plan investors, including investment retirement account custodians, etc., about um, vehicles that invest in Bitcoin. But this one would be a uh, security and would be much uh, simpler to to hold. So I would imagine it would. I uh, haven't read that section of the of the document, but I would imagine it would be be uh, way up the list of of okay assets to hold. Yeah, it seems like it. Obviously, we would uh, need to get more guidance on uh, and and really updates from these retirement plan administrators or, or investors to see what what the tolerance is. But it does seem like the uh, of any assets, the one that could make it into the portfolio. All right. So moving on to some of these other market player updates, um, you know, you mentioned Coinbase being on the other side, really on the custody side of these spot ETS. Um, Coinbase has been in the news for a number of things, um, namely the recent lawsuits with the SEC. How does that come into play and, and what exactly is going on between uh, this regulator and this uh, this giant exchange? So I think it's been a long time coming um, in terms of, uh, you know, even way before Gary Gensler was was uh, 
pronouncing just come in and register. Um, I, I think way before that, there have been a lot of conversations between digital asset platforms and and regulators at the state and federal level. Uh, so I, I think that it, it's it's a probably a very important battlefield, honestly, uh, because of the resources that Coinbase have. You know, I know the C. Oh, I believe it was had at one point in time announced an extremely large budget in the billions uh, that could be brought to bear uh, if if necessary. So so I think, you know, and, and there's also a smart move uh, in a sense that that the SEC doesn't want to go off and fight battles with 13 different um, sort of uh, blockchains or, or, or developers, etc. Or um, and go after each one when it can sort of force the force the issue with the on-ramp um and say you've got this huge bucket of things and some of those things are have got to be securities and let's start with these uh 13 or 12 or so uh so so it was brought in the second circuit um and uh so that includes like connecticut new york vermont that's going to be a more um you know as it's going to be a more a good choice by the SEC for to avoid some of the more conservative um, judges, uh, and uh, I think it was brought. Um, what the answer was filed June twenty eighth by Coinbase when they answered the complaint, um, and one of their first sort of quest, sort of defenses, if you like, was to say we don't even need to go here because of this new major questions doctrine. Um, and so recently the SEC just responded on the seventh to that um, idea. And so that's, that's, a, that's something that came out of the student Supreme Court in the student loan um, case, whether those could be forgiven. And uh, the real question here is whether what's going on between Coinbase and the SEC is of such economic and political significance under this new doctrine of a, a more conservative Supreme Court um, that it, it would actually serve to expand the power of an executive agency like the SEC beyond what it has now. Hmm. And uh, the, one of the sort of ideas that... that um, is is Coinbase has put forward, um, and some of the people that have will be filing amicus briefs in, in in this case who have been in other cases. Um, they go to the idea that there have been no um, secondary um, uh, cases in which Howie, that the famous test, uh, has been applied to determine that 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 something's an investment contract in uh, in the secondary markets, uh, where there's no necessarily a relationship with any issuer anymore. Uh, and, uh, that this idea that once you say, oh, the actual asset is, is a security, which people will point out has also not been, um, advocates of crypto assets have also pointed out that none of the Howey cases, uh, except maybe the recent Libra case have, have even held that that the actual underlying asset, like whether it's whiskey barrels or real estate, is is actually a, a security itself, as opposed to the whole 
investment deal, the investment scheme, the investment contract. And so when you put all of that together, the idea is that the SEC is really fill a, trying to fill a regulatory gap that, it, that even Gary Gensling not acknowledged existed in 2021. And uh, so the SEC is coming back and they're saying, look, we are the securities regulator and we think you have securities. It's that simple. This case cannot be, you know, got rid of so easily Coinbase. Do you expect that the end result is going to have to be litigated or will there be some sort of agreement or kind of policy maybe coming out of this that will help define which of these assets are a security security or, or do you how do you see this playing out? Uh, I think that you would need to get uh, ideally you would need to have a case come through the fifth circuit or maybe the fourth circuit more conservative um circuit with cases with more conservative judges that have a split of authority and then maybe it goes up to the the supreme court if this major questions doctrine is not successful so i, I think that um that could be that could take a little while um but ideally that would be one way it could play out um and i think you and we, we both know that that most litigation does result in a, a, a settlement. So that's, that's always a possibility. Uh, but I, I think that, that, that Coinbase is in it for the long game here, as is uh, many other players in the industry. Mm -hmm. if, uh, if Congress were to uh, pass a law and it's signed uh, into law that has definitions of, of which assets are securities and, and perhaps even different definitions than either Coinbase or the SEC, how would that come into play with maybe a Supreme Court case that's being uh, litigated or evaluated at the same time? Well, one of the ideas of that, one of the ideas that, I, and I don't know if it will be successful, one, one of the ideas that Coinbase is putting forward is that you let us kind of go down this road so far and you even said last year we didn't have the authority. So use coming back at us retrospectively is is the wrong is the wrong approach. And so um, I obviously, if and when um, you know, there's a couple of bills that are either to be reintroduced in the House uh, or in the Senate rather, and or has been floated around, which we could get to later in, in the House um, that that would add more certainty um there will be a sort of in my you know that obviously would be uh I, i'm not sure which is going to happen first basically mm -hmm. so would it be a timing thing whichever one does happen first is now the precedent or would when the supreme court case ruling overturn what has been signed into law um it's a good question. Uh, I think that it's too soon to say it's because because that would require me to know exactly what will be in the law that, that that passes through, you know, if it passes through the House and the Senate and and the extent to which it overlaps with um, with the actual sort of holding and how narrow the holding is with the Supreme Court, you know. Is it an unregistered exchange versus is it a security? There's a whole sort of 
there's a whole question of of which which claims survive to the mm -hmm. end. So probably too soon to to predict that one. Yeah, fair enough. I, I just wanted to ask because that's a question that constantly uh, circulates in my mind of you know what what's the end result here? And I agree, it it, it does seem too early to tell. You don't know I mean, what legislation I mean, could pass. Yeah, right. certainly if Congress passes a law and has spoken and there is a regulatory path, that would take a huge amount of wind uh, out of the sails of the SEC in that case. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, I, I think that we're not holding our breath for, for Congress to act, although there are some encouraging signs that we can talk about. Great. Well, we've got about five, six minutes left in the podcast. Um I want to circle back to the legislative side of things, but um, you know, we mentioned uh, earlier to, in, in this podcast the the FTX um, kind of movement there with the the wind down and liquidation of everything. Where does that stand right now? Uh, so, so there in there is a bankruptcy case, and the current sort of the latest thing is that on um, June twenty sixth or so the the debtors' council, or the debtors, filed a, a sort of second report, sort of looking with sort of what they've found um, to be the case when they've looked under the hood uh, at FTX. And the first was, sort of report, obviously a while ago, was this is a crazy mess, and uh, there was no good cor corporate governance, and uh, it's going to be very hard to track all these assets. Uh, the, the debtors have reported that of the, I believe, of the eight billion or so that that sort of, uh, in a sense, was missing or unaccounted for or could have been used for other purposes, quite a sizable portion of that has been recovered, um, and that's that's obviously great news, uh, albeit that that the bankruptcies like this one, which, if even if there has been one of this size previously. I'm not sure that has um, would uh, you know take up a lot of lawyers' fees uh, out of the the ultimate settlement, frankly. But I think I think I think they reported seventy four percent or seven billion of misappropriated fiat and stable coins had been recovered. Uh, but the big sort of important thing from my point of view was that they talked a lot about commingling. And it really reported how the difficulty that FTX had opening bank accounts fast enough and at the right places um, uh, maybe caused them to to take some allegedly some steps that were, uh, um, you know, obscuring ownership and there were internal payment agreements. And, and a lot of those, uh, if the allegations are true, um, look like um, absolute use of customer funds for other purposes, ranging from from real estate to to the venture arm uh, to um, uh, yeah. So I mean, it's 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 fairly shocking reading if the allegations uh, uh, um, and reports are correct in 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 that in the bankruptcy. But basically, keeping customer funds separate. Sure, it turns out to be very important because it can lead, it can lead to all sorts of other things happening which which shouldn't happen if 
if customer funds are not kept separately. And in crypto, that means not only on the books and records uh, in a spreadsheet effectively, that means uh, actually in on-chain in wallets too. And, and that may be some of the problems that, that not only FTX and others have had is, is that the records just didn't match the wallets. And, mm. and that seems some, a pretty shocking piece of failure of, of, of governance and controls. Um, but that idea is, is that customer funds should be separate from at, even at a wallet level. And I think that, that this report bears that out. Well, that's a perfect segue into uh, maybe getting into the legislative side. Um, you know, I'm very pleased to see Texas uh, Governor Abbott passing or, or signing into law the HB 1666, the Proof of Reserves Bill specific to Texas, which, uh, you know, you actually authored or, or had a significant part in writing that piece of law. Uh, Briefly, can you explain what that is to our audience and, and why that's so significant? Yeah, so so credit should go to um, the the bill's uh, sponsors uh, and to the Texas legislature to for have it for its bipartisan support of the bill and uh, to to the IT caucus that kind of uh, made it happen because to get bipartisan support of the bill is no uh, no small feat. Uh, Texas Blockchain Council put together a working group and was happy to serve on that to provide feedback as the bill um, was uh, sort of designed and all the changes happened and all the, the stakeholders gave their comments. Uh, so so what the bill is, uh, is, is, is two things really at, at, at its core. And it's a requirement that if you're a digital asset service provider, that provides custody and trading um, you and has a certain size and number of customers in Texas, then you have to keep your customer funds separate from your platform assets with some small exceptions. Uh, and so that's, that's what the heart of the, to me, that's what the heart of the new Texas law is that, that signed uh, was signed by the governor, having passed in both the Senate um, and the House. So the the uh, so the other part of it, and 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 so there are several requirements under the law, and so one of them is that uh, the customer funds not only have to be segregated and separately accounted for, um, they can't be um, commingled, and they have to be maintained in a way that the customer can fully withdraw them. Um, and they can't be used, you can't use one customer's assets to secure or guarantee transactions of, of another. And, and these principles come from other laws, really, like the CFTC laws um, about maintenance of, of customer assets, uh, for instance, in, a, in, a, in an FCM. And, and the principle applies in other laws, keep customer assets separate uh, for obvious mm -hmm. reasons, FTX being the perfect example of what can happen under stress if, if, if assets are not kept separate. There's also a reporting element to it. Um, proof of reserves is, is very unpopular politically um, and maybe it was overstated, uh, but the ability to, to cryptographically prove you have 
the the assets and 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 to have a, a proof of liabilities too. Um, there are limitations of of that, obviously, but alongside audits, that's a very powerful tool and one that the law um, requires an, an annual filing. And there's also some quarterly reporting uh, with the Texas Department of Banking. Um, and the law gives the Texas Department of Banking and the Finance Commission the power to to implement um, the statute. It's a statute and, and with rules or an order or or a supervisory memorandum, you know, explaining how compliance with this high level law is going to is going to work exactly. Great, great explanation uh, and summary of that bill. Uh, so more to come on the actual procedures uh, on the law itself, but getting it passed was a huge, um, huge deal, a very big monumental uh, uh, event that took place in Texas. And, and I think it's good to see the state leading the way and implementing this kind of uh, regulatory oversight for um, the, the companies who offer these services. Um, okay, well, I think just to close, uh, one last topic, maybe focusing more on the federal legislative side, anything that in particular that you want to mention on uh, some bills making their way around Congress, perhaps the McHenry um, bipartisan bill by the Financial Services Committee and the Ag Committee or the, the Gillibrand and, and Senator Lummis bill? Yeah, so we've got a couple of, of, of things in process, whether they'll happen before the August recess, et cetera, and it's, it's quite another matter. But, and that, that's not my, my area to predict these things. However, what, what is significant about them is the, there is a discussion draft that has been put out by the um, chairs of the House Financial Services Committee and the Agriculture Committee. And that's critical because in the U.S., you've got to have um, the the people in Congress that that sort of uh, empower the SEC and those that empower the CFTC um, speaking of the same mind. Uh, and so um, this is uh, Chairman Thompson and then uh, Chairman uh, Patrick McHenry, and I think also the subcommittee chairs uh, French Hill and Dusty Johnson. And so that that's a that's one draft that's been um, circulated, and and uh, the sponsors have asked, uh, authors have asked uh, the SEC to to uh, to comment on actually. Uh, so the idea uh, and the regulators generally. So the idea is to carve up in a way that doesn't leave everything to facts and circumstances and Supreme Court cases that take years to happen, uh, to actually. Uh, come up with a process to decide if something's a security and a commodity and to put into place actual rules about the participants in each of those markets. So so Bitcoin and Ethereum, for instance, as things currently stand under that proposal would would sort of fall under the CFTC um, and its foot soldier, National Futures Association. And so there would be rules for those participants and then those markets. Same thing on the the SEC side, and uh, it, it treats differently um, sort of uh, assets that were issued um, to those involved in in bringing it to life versus um, the sort of the assets that 
are, are really for the end investors, et cetera, that, and how those are treated. So it has a process. The, I, the, the point is it, it brings some, le- it seeks to bring some level of certainty. And I, I can't predict whether it will be um, successful but I, I, or some piece of it, but the fact it's got bipartisan support and the fact it's the head of those two committees is significant. Mm. Yeah, I find that discussion um, on the House side, that discussion draft to be very informative and, and pragmatic in the way that they approach the securities versus commodities question. Um, you know, the point you brought up about, uh, for example, Ethereum, you know, was Ether a security at one point and is it still a security? Uh, well, you know, they kind of argue if it reaches a sufficient point of decentralization, which, you know, how is that defined? But if you do reach that point, maybe it does change from being more of an investment item to a more commodity-like item that has other use cases. And I think that's that's very fascinating because we haven't seen uh, really policy anywhere that kind of has that similar approach or perspective on it. So it will be uh, interesting to see how that all plays out. And, and there is, just to get a plug-in for keeping customer funds separately, there is a provision in that draft to <laughs> to require customer funds to be kept separately. Uh, the the, the Lummis, just for a moment, the Lummis Gillibrand um, uh, Responsible Financial Innovation Act, that was, you know, introduced a whole year ago uh, and um, didn't go anywhere. But also is significant because it's bipartisan and there's a member of the Senate um, uh, Ag Committee and a member of the Senate Banking Committee uh, as bill sponsors. And we, we news reports are that um, it may get reintroduced uh, in the not so distant future. Um, and uh, that also has a very broad reach and a pragmatic approach. So which provisions and which bill, I don't think any of us will prevail. I don't think we we know yet uh, and, and when. But uh, certainly we've come a long way uh, in, in, in having both committees and bipartisan support. Yeah, I mean, moral of the story, Congress and members of Congress are starting to take this very seriously to the point to where they are drafting legitimate legislation and having informed comments about how do we deal with these assets. So it's good to see. Um, To your point, time will tell what actually does happen, and I'm I'm excited to see that uh, come into play. Gavin, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm sure we'll have you on again. Thanks, Tim.